Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Liz Bursky is a freelance journalist and author of 14 non-fiction and fiction books. Her latest novel is Bad Behaviour, a story of three women coming to terms with their past. As a journalist, she has over 40 years' experience in the media, both in England and Australia. She worked on ABC Radio in Perth and went on to become an executive producer there. She's worked as a freelance journalist in Australia since 1981 and has written for many publications, including The Australian, Homes and Living, Cosmopolitan, and Weekend News. Her first novel was published in 2004 and since then she has written three more books featuring older women as their central characters. So thanks for joining us today, Liz. It's a pleasure, Valerie. It's nice to be with you. Now tell us, when did you realise that you wanted to write and you wanted to make a career out of it? I wanted to be a writer all my life, really. When I was at school, um, writing was the only thing that I was any good at, so I assumed I'd be a writer. It was only when I told my parents when I was 16, I told my parents I was going to be a writer, and um, they were absolutely horrified that <laughs> it wasn't a real job. <laughs> and how did you react to that? <laughs> well, I, I was shocked, really, because um, it was the, actually it was the only thing I was any good at at school, and um, I, I was a great reader, so to me, people who wrote books must have a job. Um, my father said that I'd never earn a living and I'd be a burden on the economy. Oh, dear. Um, my mother said nobody would marry me because um, women writers were bossy, interfering and opinionated. Oh, my <laughs> so God. So it was quite crushing, really, and so I was offered that choice that many women of my age were offered, which was a nurse, teacher or secretary, and I picked secretary. Right. And so how did you then um, transition into a writing career? Well, um, I was working as a secretary in England at Gatwick Airport and the Reuters um, journalist used to come into our office every day and use our phone to phone through his copy. And it slowly dawned on me that journalism was a job which involved writing, and I thought maybe I could do that yeah. um, because he was obviously earning a living yes. and other journalists were earning a living. And so I asked him how uh, how you became a journalist, and he said, well, you could start by going out and um, uh, doing a few interviews at weekends and seeing if you can sell them to the stories to the newspaper. Because, of course, in those days there were no uh, university degrees in journalism. Yes. And... Um, uh, and so I did go out and collect some stories uh, at the weekends, and I did manage to sell them to the local paper. And then after a few months of doing that um, and still doing my secretarial job, I saw that the paper that I was working for, which was one of a, a group of papers, um, was actually looking for, for a journalist. And they kept advertising the position and advertising, advertising. Clearly, they couldn't get anyone. So I applied for the job and I got it. Fantastic. I was very surprised. I didn't really know. I was quite um, ignorant, really. I didn't really know 
anything about the media or um, about the principles of journalism or uh, ethics or any of those sorts of things. So uh, it was all a bit of a shock to the system, but it, that was how I got into it. Wonderful. So obviously you've worked as a journalist for about 40 years in radio and print and uh, a range of different mediums. How, what then prompted you to write your first novel in 2004? Because that's very, very different. Yeah, it is very different. And um, But of course it was what I'd always wanted. When I told my parents I wanted to be a writer, I, meant I wanted to be a novelist. I think I probably also meant that I wanted to be a rich and famous novelist, but <laughs> I don't think I actually said that. Um, so my first books were all sort of extensions of journalism because I was trying to earn a living. A lot of my life I've been a, um, a sole parent, mm. and um, so and most of my right life in journalism I've been a freelancer, and I believed that the way to make a living by writing was as a freelance writer, mm. and that meant non-fiction. Uh, and so uh, that was what I'd always done, and I never really had the time to explore fiction mm. uh, because being a parent and a, and a full-time worker as well, um, there just weren't the chances to do that. So it was when my, um, when my children had grown up and left home and I had more time to myself that I began to think about writing fiction and decided that... Um, that I was going to try and uh, and it, you know um, move into into the field of fiction. And was that a difficult transition? Did you have to retrain your brain into a different way of writing? How did that happen for you? I did find it difficult. Um, I have, of course, the first novel, which is in a drawer in my bedroom and will never come out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I also have a children's novel, which is similar. Um, I found it very difficult, and even um, even when I'd written the first novel and it went out to various um, publishers, they all sent it back and nobody told me why, but finally one publisher did say why. Um, what she said was, um, is this polemic or is it fiction? Because it can't be both, and at the moment it isn't either. And And it was such a gift because it showed me what, what I had done wrong, mm. it showed me that I had been trying to impose certain things on the readers. It had that didactic style that yeah. journalism and nonfiction has. Yeah. Um, and, of course, with fiction, you need to let go of that and you have to be prepared to let the readers make up their own minds about, about the story and the characters. And so that was really a gift, that one sentence in a letter. Mm. And um, that was when I wrote the novel again. Um, mm. and. Um, and it was sent out again. Um, and uh, but I still find, from time to time, if I feel particularly passionate about uh, about some aspect of a story that I'm writing, I tend to get didactic, and my editor will very sweetly write back to me and say, "Hmm, yes, look at this." <laughs> Fortunately, now I can see what I've done. And writing a novel is very different in terms of just its length. So because as a journalist, you get there's a sense of instant gratification because you write a story and before long, it's published. But a novel is it has a much longer gestation period. Did you find yourself being impatient or, or not getting used to that really long period? Or how, how was that for you? 
Um, it was uh, that was hard. Um, I, I, you do get used, I think, as a as a journalist, and also I've worked as a broadcaster in live radio. So you do get used to instant gratification, or fairly instant. And I'm not a patient person, um, so I've had to retrain myself to to rest with it and let it go. And one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is to change my responses to um, to things around me um, that relate to my writing and um, allow myself more space and time. So um, I, I have got, got used to the long gestation period. I, I actually think I need longer than I've, I'm taking at the moment. Um, but it's been an interesting retraining, I think, and not a bad thing to do at my time of life, really. Perhaps I should have done it 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> How long is it taking you to write a, a novel? It's taking me now about 18 months right? because I work as well. I, mm. I teach at Curtin University in Perth. I teach writing there mm, mm. two and a half days a week. Um, but I do like to get into a flow as much as possible and keep going um, quite quickly. And do you um, find that you can do that in your days off from teaching or do you have to also take a period off where you're not doing any teaching at all and you've just got a, you know a full-time period where you can focus on your writing um i think that the, 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 the teaching actually keeps me focused because i know that i'm there two and a half days a week it makes me use that makes the best use of the rest of my time mm. um I've, I've once or twice taken like a month um, to finish something, if I if I needed to meet the deadline mm. um, with one of the books, I did that, um, and uh, well, actually with two, I, I've done that. Um, but I, I actually find that the the sort of creative tension that that's created for me by teaching as well keeps me very focused, and I've got better as I got older at writing in fragmented time. I used to think I couldn't write anything unless I had a day to do it, you know, a day clear of everything else. Now I know I, sit, I can sit down and do an hour um, and then go leave it and go back to it. Mm. So I've got better at that, I suppose, as I've got older. So tell us more about your latest novel, Bad Behaviour. What's it about and how did this idea come into your head? Well, Bad Behaviour, like my other novels, is it, it has older people as the central characters um, because I think that older women particularly are underrepresented. So I write about the lives of older people and particularly about older women. And in this particular book, um, the, 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 the three women, um, well, there are four women actually, three main characters and one uh, less significant but important character, um, it, they're all about coming to terms with their past. And in this book, which is a little different from the earlier books, I actually look at them when they were younger women. So look at the events of their lives that have brought them where they are today. So the book begins in 1999 in Western Australia and in England with two women who knew each other when, um, in 1968. And what I wanted to write about was um, the events of 1968 and the world in 2008. And the way that the events of 1968 shaped these women's lives, although at the time, in that very turbulent political time, 
neither of them thought they were political and neither of them was particularly interested in what was happening in the world. Mm. Um, so I was wanting to say that you know, our lives, whoever we are, our lives are influenced by the spirit of the times and the, the decisions that we make and the bad behaviour of our youth um, is what did, often determines the rest of our lives. Mm. So the, in 1999, the women are um, looking back and then the story goes back to the 60s and then it comes forward again to 2000 through to 2008. Mm. And when you were writing those storylines, did you find it easy to switch between the two eras or did you write them both in parallel or write one then the other? Or how did that work for you? Well, I started off writing it beginning in the 60s. Mm. And um, I intended to write it chronologically, but with a, obviously a huge gap between the 60s and the turn of the century. Um, but um, and, and that was okay, but my publishers were concerned that because they felt my readers were always looking for contemporary stories about contemporary characters, that starting with um, people in their people aged 19 and 20 might be a turn-off for them. Mm-hmm. And so they asked me to see if I could work it an, another way to begin with, to begin with the mature characters, so that readers got to know those characters and then were, would be interested to find out about their earlier lives. Mm-hmm. So initially it was written chronologically, um, and and then the structure was changed later. Mm-hmm. And do you find there is much fiction out there with older female characters? No, Valerie, there isn't. The, I mean, I think we've been terribly badly underrepresented. Mm. I mean, there are older characters in fiction, but the, there aren't um, books or television drama um, that mm. is centred on the lives of older people, particularly mm. on older women. When I first started looking for books like that to read myself um, about 10 years ago, I couldn't find anything at all. And it seemed that all the characters that were older were in there as negative stereotypes, Mm. really to sort of disrupt the lives or the storylines of the other characters. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some from England and some from the USA, but but frankly not very many. And I couldn't find anything Australian at all. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just completing PhD on this subject at the moment so I've now made a much closer study Mm. and in popular fiction in Australia um, since the mid-90s there are only about four books in which the characters are are older women and the story revolves around those people. And why do you think that is? I think it's just the way that women, older women are viewed. Um, older women will tell you themselves, you know, I'm 65, but women, once they get past 50, will tell you that they feel invisible. Um, and they, uh, we have actual physical experiences of being invisible when people just do not see us in a queue or waiting somewhere, something like this. Mm. Um, but we also feel invisible because we're not visible in the culture. Because there's a sort of representational flattery about seeing yourself constantly portrayed Mm. on television or in fiction. You know, um, fictional characters are very powerful in that way. And so if you don't see those, um, you feel invisible. Um, And I think that, you know, we're not, we, we are a culture that's obsessed with youth 
and beauty and sex. And women, older women obviously aren't young. They're not, um, they're not considered sexy or sensual unless they're trying to look much younger than they are. Mm. And, um, and older women are not considered to be beautiful because these days to be beautiful you have to be youthful and shiny and golden and glossy and mm-hmm. have no rolls of fat. <laughs> <laughs> and so was it a conscious decision to revolve many of your stories around um women you know of a certain age or or did you or did you oh, no. it just yes, is it that what just came out it was a conscious decision um i couldn't find the books i wanted to read and as a freelancer you, you know you make a living by finding a gap in the market and yes. filling it and so i thought well i've always wanted to write fiction this is an obvious gap Maybe I can write fiction about older women. Great. And the amazing thing to me is that my first book came, my first novel came out in 2004. Yeah. And um, I thought, and it went really well, and women were writing to me and turning up at functions and so on and saying, nobody's writing about our lives. It's mm. so good to you know, read about women like us in fiction. And I thought, well, now that this has started, mm. other people will start doing but they're not. <laughs> That's great for you. <laughs> it's great for me. I'm not sure it's great for the whole idea of trying no. to make older women more visible, but it's certainly great for me. So how does that make you feel when people respond in that way and they tell you what an impact your books have had on their lives? Well, it's very exciting, obviously, and it's very gratifying to, you know, to, to find people feel really emotional about the fact that somebody can... Cannot, is identifying in print with mm. with their lives, with the issues that they're concerned about. That they say, you know, you, you, you make me feel I'm not mad because mm. other people feel like other women feel like I do. I can see that from the books. So that's mm. incredibly gratifying. It, it also sometimes people do tell me, and, and quite often actually, of things that they have done because they've read the books. Mm. So. And that is also pretty exciting, but it also feels like a huge responsibility because Mm. it had honestly never occurred to me that people might actually change their lives because of what I wrote. Like what? What what has happened? Well, one woman, for example, um, went to Peru for six months to work in an orphanage. Mm. Uh, It was something she'd always wanted to do, and she she read my first novel, Gang of Four, Mm. and, and felt that you know, that was what she was going to do. That was the midlife and, and the characters in the book were going off and doing things they'd always wanted to do. And so she went and did that. Wow. Um, I was talking to a woman in, in Sydney last year after after a talk I'd given and she told me she'd been a corporate lawyer all her life. Mm. And um, she, when she'd read one of the books, she uh, gave it up. And she retrained as a swimming teacher because she had always wanted to be. She'd been a state swimming champion when she was a teenager. And she'd always wanted to do that. And she, wow. But she'd been pushed into the law by her family. And mm. so she gave it up and retrained and was having a wonderful life being a, a swimming teacher. Mm. Many women have told me they left their marriages. Oh, my Which I goodness. have to say that wasn't my intention. Oh. <laughs> um, but um, but they, what they felt was that from reading the books that they could view midlife as a time when they could follow a different direction Mm. and that, you know, if they were in relationships that weren't working out, Mm. then it wasn't that there was no choice. Mm. You know, there is life after 50. That's what people 
write to me about both older women and younger women um, that they feel so much more positive about life after 50. Mm. Now, I presume obviously you draw um, inspiration and ideas from your own life, but also that of your friends and your peers, um, you know, to get into the heads of other women who are around you and their lives and their choices. Uh, Do you feel a a bit, a sense of responsibility or a bit scared that, you know, you might be drawing too much (laughs) from the lives of your friends or peers um, in your books? Well, no, not really. I mean... (laughs) All life is is the seed capital for fiction, mm. um, and I never model any character on um, on, on any one particular person. Mm. Um, and I I haven't used any events that happened to friends of mine. Right. Um, but as you know, I mean, you're you're a journalist and you're a writer. Mm. Um, over over a period of time, and, and I've been working for a very long time, you meet an awful lot of people, you interview a lot of people, mm. you read a lot, you see a lot of people in different situations, mm. and that all feeds into a melting pot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I don't feel that I am drawing on the lives of my friends any more than I do on the lives of any other women, you know, mm. whom I've never met but might have seen you know, in in workplaces or, mm. or on the television or whatever. Um, I, and none of my friends has ever thought that I have modelled anyone on them or used an event from their life. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you are in your writing mode, when you're actually writing a novel, do you have a routine, a daily routine that helps you get the words out? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I am fairly disciplined Actually, because for so much of my life I was a freelancer mm. and I had children. So, you know, if you don't stick at it, you don't get paid and mm-hmm. the children don't eat. Yes, sure. um, so um, I suppose I, I'm thankful for that background. Um, I do, I mean, I don't write on the days that I work at Curtin. Mm. I'm usually too tired when I get home. Mm. Um, but other days, including weekends, I will sort of get up and go for a walk and have a coffee and read the paper, and then I'll start writing. I prefer to start around 10 or 10.30, something like that. And I'll work through, um, well, possibly, um, you know, till about 4 or 5 o'clock. I might have a break then cup of tea and something to eat and um, then I might go back and write some more or I might go and watch the news later on mm. and something on television but I do work fairly consistently. Do you have a goal um, of a word count or anything like no, that? No, no, no I don't have a, have a goal on a word count. Mm. I, um, I'm simply um, slogging through the story mm. and going where it takes me and some days I might spend a lot of time writing 500 words mm. and, and another day I might write 3,000 or 4,000 or more. So what happens the next day? Do you just pick up where you left off or do you review and edit or what happens? I review. I, I always go back and review the work that I did the previous day. Mm. I often edit it and um, that gets me back into writing and moves me on. Mm-hmm. And are you currently writing your next novel? Yes, I am. Yes. And how, how far is that off? Um, well, I think they'll probably bring this one out, um, maybe before Christmas next year. Right. So you're sort of at the early stages of it or? Yes, it's the early stages. Yes. So it'll either be sort of pre-Christmas next year or or maybe just after Christmas next. 
after next Christmas. What's that like at the beginning of the novel? There's basically such a blank canvas for you. Is it daunting or is it exciting? Um, well, it's, it's very exciting when it's still an idea in your head, I find. When you start mm. to write it, it becomes daunting because mm. for me, I find that the characters come alive and um, I get terribly agitated about whether they're at, it's actually going to work out into a story or not. And um, um, whether I've got too many viewpoints, and um, whether this, whether the very, very vague storyline in my head is actually going to be strong enough to sustain a novel. And typically, is it? Which well, has been so far. Like she says, crossing her fingers. I'm sure. (laughs) And finally, what is your advice for aspiring writers out there who want to do what you've done and and publish their novels? Um, Well, two pieces of advice, I suppose. One is don't wait for inspiration because it probably won't ever come. I think some inspiration does come, but it comes once you get started. You have to sit down and start writing and keep writing, even if you know, even you know, even if you know it's not very good. The only way to get it good is to keep at it. So take the plunge, put words on paper, and 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 hang in there. The other bit of advice, and I think this is really important: don't show your writing to the people you love. Mm. And ask their opinion on it, because depending on how you, they feel that day. Um, that's the reaction you will get. And the fact is, I, I would say this, um, even if you are, you know, living with a writer or have a parent who's a writer, their emotions about you will always affect the way they respond to your work. That's the first thing. Um, and the other thing is that if they're not writers, the fact that they like it or don't like it doesn't actually mean a lot. Um, it doesn't mean that if, if if your children or your partner think what you've written is wonderful, it doesn't mean that it, 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 it is wonderful. It doesn't mean that a publisher will want to publish it. So, so mm. protect yourself. Take it to someone who knows, a manuscript assessor, an agent, um, a professional editor, um, mm. and let um, base the changes that you make and the decisions that you take on what they tell you. That's great advice. Actually, I've I always ask that question, and I don't think anyone has ever said that before. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah, I really like it. Not the bit about taking it to an agent, but you know, don't show it to the people you love because you know what? They love you. So, well, they either they either do love you, Valerie, or that particular day you yeah. really pissed them off, mm. and um, and then you know they don't love you as much as they usually do. <laughs> so, so it's, right. I mean, it's really, really difficult to read and critique the work of mm. someone you love or who loves you or both. Mm. Mm. Wonderful advice. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Liz. It's a great pleasure, Valerie. Lovely talking to you. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.